Hello, I'm David Mosscroft. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. In 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States recognized same-sex marriage in the country as a fundamental right protected by the Constitution. The ruling was the culmination of decades of legal battles and advocacy labor by the gay rights community and their allies. The story of same-sex marriage in the United States is long and complicated, but one author has distilled this history into an accessible and engrossing tale of policy, legal, and personal battles. Yet while the book ends in a ruling for justice and equality, the story of 2S LGBTQ plus rights in the United States continues, and so do the battles. So we ask, what is the future of same-sex marriage in the United States? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Sasha Eisenberg, an American journalist and the author of four books, including his latest, The Engagement, America's Quarter-Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. This episode was recorded live. Hello, Sasha. Hello, David. Thanks for having me here. My pleasure. Thank you very much for being here for this first live episode. It's very exciting uh, to have you for this, and I very much appreciate it. It's always nice to be in Canada. So, <laughs> <laughs> Although you do get the benefit of not being in the sort of muggy, heat wave, swamp town, Ottawa. So I, I have to say... I envy you a little bit. Unless you're in DC, where are you coming? No, I'm in I'm in Los Angeles. So, okay, so I, I'll win the weather battle any day. Win this round. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, let's start by going through the history of the fight for same-sex marriage in the in the United States, uh, because there is a lot of it, and and the book is is significant. As I was saying before to you, uh, it is a long book, but it reads uh, like a story, and and it's extraordinarily accessible and compelling. But I'm wondering if you could give us a sort of mini version of the legal and activist activity going back to Hawaii in, in 1990, more or less where your book begins, and then running up to the 2015 Supreme Court ruling. Sure. You know what? Before 1990, uh, same-sex marriage is not in any way a political issue in the United States. There's not a, a gay rights organization that has endorsed it as an objective. Anti-gay activists are trying to stop gay people from getting all sorts of rights and freedoms and liberties. They are not trying to stop gays and lesbians from marrying because none of them are attempting to. There's barely a politician in the United States that's ever been asked his or her opinion on it. Um, what happens in, in Hawaii is this sort of freakish set of, of very local events driven by personal, parochial, even petty interests where uh, an activist um, basically launches a PR stunt and brings three couples into the uh, public health department office in, in Honolulu, requests marriage licenses, the entirety of the Honolulu press corps in town. And uh, he's not a lawyer. He basically has misread the state's marriage law and uh, has a misguided sense of that, that perhaps this could uh, uh results in them being legally married. Um, it does not. Their applications are rejected. They go to a civil rights attorney who sues the state of Hawaii. And, and uh, to the shock of everybody involved in the spring of 1993, the Supreme Court of Hawaii becomes the first court on earth to recognize that the fundamental right to marriage in the U.S., sorry, in the state constitution um, can, can extend to same-sex couples as well as, as opposite-sex couples. And that's sort of when gay marriage arrives as an issue, right? As a, a you know, a, a viable legal uh, uh, objective um, and the type of policy question that we sort of recognize as, as political, where, you know, politicians are forced to engage with it. 
um, uh, interest groups uh, sort of play their role. You get lobbying, legislative, electoral, you know, electoral campaigns. And by the mid 2000s, it's the dominant sort of domestic social uh, issue in the United States. It is, you know, for a time supplanted where probably abortion was in the 1980s, where the death penalty was for some of the 1990s, um, probably where you'd say immigration and citizenship uh, uh, related issues became in the years that followed. But it's sort of the all encompassing moral debate in the United States and their efforts to amend the U.S. Constitution. Successfully, 35 state constitutions are amended to ban same-sex marriage. Um, and it it seems at the time that this could be a very long and somewhat intractable uh, uh, fight. Um, and uh, a number of things sort of turn in the period between 2008 and 2012. Uh, and um, the, the tide turns in such a way that Majority, majority opinion back same-sex marriage. One of the things that drew me to the subject was pollsters saying to me that they'd never seen opinion move as quickly on a single issue as they'd seen it move on marriage. Politicians following that change, and eventually not just state but federal courts recognizing that that the U.S. Constitution um, uh, included guarantees that that, that uh, applied to to gays and lesbians' desire to marry, and um, the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in, in June of, of of 2015, um, which was sort of way ahead of schedule, um, the wildest expectations of, of the most optimistic, uh, uh, gay rights advocates, um, uh, ended up striking down bans in, in states that, that, that had them on the books and ensuring that, as you say, that the, that the constitution guarantees a right to marry for couples, regardless of, 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 um, of their sex. I mean, one of the things that I found interesting about the book is that it is a policy story, but it's also the story of individuals and, and families and allies who were fighting for rights equality. So at once you're, you're seeing what, what you know, political science would, would call process tracing, sort of process, understanding the process by which a policy is enacted. But you're also seeing stories of people doing the work. I wonder if you could talk to us about some of the key characters in the book and how they contributed to the to the same sex ruling. I mean, you, you mentioned it starts with a guy in Hawaii doing stunt, yeah, and it yeah. sort of carries through these. But a number of people who who bring these challenges throughout the country throughout the, the sort of twenty five years that followed. Yeah, so you know, Bill Woods is the guy in Hawaii. Uh, he is um, basically the gay activist in 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 Hawaii through the seventies and eighties. I think like many first-generation activists in any community, he's incredibly entrepreneurial. He founds the Gay Newspaper, the Gay Community Center, the Gay Discussion Group. You know, he's at the center of everything. He's very good at getting attention. Um, he uh, is not terribly good at working with others or, or like, you know, alliances and coalitions and such. And he ends up in a... Um, uh, in a conflict with uh, these two lesbian women that, with, with whom he had been rivalrous uh, because he was the editor and publisher of the Gay Community News and they had launched a, a magazine called Island Lifestyle uh, and they were competing for what was a relatively small pool of, of advertisers who wanted to cater to, uh, uh, to, to being gay and lesbian publications in, in, in Honolulu in 1989. And they end up in a conflict for control of a, uh, a pride planning committee. And these two women wanted to uh, focus on a picnic. 
Bill Woods wants to have a parade. Uh, they, for a variety of reasons, don't want to have a parade. They tell him he can have a committee to look into having a parade. He submits a report from his committee. They, they ignore the report. And he decides he's going to start his own pride parade uh, and rally council that's going to do its own event. And now he's looking for ways to upstage this pride picnic. And he goes out and he uh, uh, gets the Royal Hawaiian Jazz Band to agree to perform, to gets a local politician to be the marshal in his parade. He gets a friend who's a chef and caterer to uh, organize a, uh, an international food festival. And he decides he's going to have a mass wedding on stage at the end of this parade. Um, and there have been couples who've been exchanging vows at the Metropolitan Community Church, which was a sort of gay-friendly church in in hawaii exchanging like having commitment ceremonies these holy union ceremonies that nobody expected had any force of law whatsoever um and woods was was not a lawyer and and um basically misread the state's marriage statute and uh came away with the misguided uh conclusion that that um that the state might have to recognize these couples and he went to the state uh chapter of the aclu the american civil liberties union which was you know had, had done taken some action in favor of gay rights and was, was generally, uh, you know, defended the sort of rights of sexual minorities. Uh, and he wanted them to back him up. Uh, and they didn't want to have anything to do with him. They, you know, they, I think they questioned his reading of the law, but, but perhaps more importantly, they didn't want to be part of a Bill Woods project. He had picked previous fights with people who were on their board. They, it, it, you know, it seems sort of politically perilous to, to, to go in on this, but they didn't want to say no to him because they knew Bill Woods was the type of guy that if you, if you, you know, drew a line against, he would, he would enjoy it and elevate the fight. So they spent all of night, they spent most of 1990 basically trying to fob him off, delay him slow to get past June when pride month will come and go and the parade will happen presumably and Woods won't do his wedding and he'll move on to his next thing. And so, you know, they, they say they need to refer to a staff attorney and they need to get an opinion from ACLU office in New York and all these things. And he doesn't go away and he gets offended by what he sees as them uh, basically dismissing and delaying him. And so he decides on December 17th, 1990, that he is going to basically try to force the hand of the ACLU by bringing these six couples in, as I suggested, to the to, to the public health office to request marriage licenses as, a, as an effort to jam the ACLU. He's going to bring these couples back after they've applied to the ACLU office with all these cameras and newspaper reporters behind him. And then the ACLU will have to take their case, he, he assumes, because the, 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 the media will be too much. The ACLU still doesn't want to take the case. Um, and you know, as I suggested, you know, then, then a lawyer mounts their case and they sue the state the, the next spring. You know, what's remarkable about the story of individual initiative, and one of the reasons I think it's great for people who want to think about how social change happens is this is not how we're told social change happens yeah. from like the professional social change people. Um, you know, we, we look back at, at many of the momentous uh, civil rights lawsuits in American history, and they were mounted as test cases where people went out and found ideal plaintiffs, shopped around for a venue, tried to engineer the timing so that they would get in front of the judges they wanted at the right time, started with a legal theory, and then went and found facts that they thought would support it. Like, you know, this is the story of how we desegregated schools in this country. This is the story of how, uh, uh, you know, 
the right to abortion was secured through the courts, um, all of it. And this is not how this happened. This was one guy acting of his individual initiative with a whole bunch of very local and peculiar incentives that wouldn't, couldn't be replicated anywhere else and that accidentally got a favorable result um, or inadvertently got a favorable result without any strategy behind it. And that's sort of what sets us off into, into the world that we're in. And, you know, I think, so, so I started with Bill Woods because he sort of kickstarts this whole thing into motion, but I think it's illustrative of a theme that runs through a book, which is sort of unintended consequences, how, you know, a lot of things were done either without a sense of strategy or where the strategy ended up um, backfiring or being misguided. And, and we sort of see versions of that uh, repeat themselves throughout this history. Now that's the, the activist side of it. The other side of it is, is politicians. And I mean, you write about, and I suspect people are familiar with a sort of long history of politicians, uh, quote unquote, evolving on the issue. And I, I, I do this sort of scare quotes because I'm a little bit cynical about that evolution, but I'm curious about it if you, whether to the, to what degree it's, it's genuine in some cases, in other degrees it's calculated, or whether or not politicians get um, caught in what one professor of mine called the civilizing force of hypocrisy, which is, you know, you can be a hypocrite, but if they catch you and hold you to those standards, then all of a sudden you might end up becoming a better person sort of by accident. And I'm thinking about the Clinton administration, the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton, I wonder if you could take us through the sort of evolution, quote unquote, of, of same-sex marriage support among those folks. Yes. So, you know, broadly, this is a story of politicians following public opinion rather than than leading it. And it is rare that we saw politicians getting out in front of public opinion on this. Um, or and, and, you know, often that meant very rare to see politicians supporting same-sex marriage when it wasn't clearly popular among their sort of key constituencies. Um, you know, one thing that changes, you know, so talking about democratic politicians who, you know, unlike Republicans through much of this era, wanted to maintain the the appearance and disposition of being fundamentally pro-gay rights, which was not a priority for, for Republican politicians for, for much of this time. Um, you know, Bill Clinton had this issue thrust upon him. He, when he first ran for president in, in 1992, he, you know, was promising to let gays serve in the military. He was promised, you know, promised more funding for AIDS. He was never asked, as, as best I could find, uh, directly what he thought of same-sex marriage. And it lands on his desk as the Defense of Marriage Act, which is this effort by Republicans to uh, basically preempt what they think will be uh, a, a negative trial verdict for them at uh, in Hawaii by doing two things. One, telling states what they probably already had the authority to do, but was that they did not have to recognize Hawaii's marriages. And two, defining in federal law that, that marriage would be only between a man and a woman. And so that regardless of what Hawaii or any other state did, the federal government, you know, for tax reasons and other things, social security, stuff like that, would not have to recognize those couples as married. And, you know, Clinton was in a sort of tough spot in that the votes were there to override his veto it had he vetoed it. So there was, you know, the counterfactual never ends with Bill Clinton stopping this from becoming law. The question within his White House that became pretty clear early on was um, what, what, how do you respond to this uh, knowing 
that. And, you know, I don't think he, there were no serious people arguing that he should veto it. There were people arguing sort of that he should threaten to veto it. And at least, you know, and then there are a whole bunch of calculations that are sort of peculiar to the interaction between the American executive and legislative branch. But there was some school of thought that if he delayed saying he would veto it, maybe the issue would just go away. Um, maybe if he if he threatened early on to veto it, then they would make it worse. Um, and so there was a lot of gamesmanship in that election year in, in 1996. Um, Clinton ended up 15 years later saying he regretted having signed it and came up with some sort of post hoc rationalizations that that clearly in my research were were just not like just ahistorical for what the factors were at the time. Um, but it, but he became a source of shame for his administration. Um, the thing that changes it, you know, so Bill Clinton is, you know, there are only a handful of politicians in 1996. Ted Kennedy's, the, you know, the only sort of nationally prominent one who are clearly in favor of letting same-sex couples marry. Um, you know, to the extent that there's a liberal position in the Democratic Party, left position in the Democratic Party in 1996, it is kind of leave this to the states and the federal government shouldn't get involved, but not necessarily, I think it would be good if my state let gay couples marry. Um, this becomes a sort of three-sided issue in 2000. What, what happens in Vermont, there's another lawsuit in Vermont, unlike the Hawaii one, it's sort of plotted better. It starts with the lawyers and then they go find the plaintiffs instead of the other way around. And they win at the Vermont Supreme Court in 1999. And the Vermont Supreme Court says that under the Vermont Constitution, uh, the state cannot deny equal benefits to same-sex couples that would be available to opposite-sex couples. But the, the, the court says this does not have to end with same-sex couples being allowed to marry and, and tells the Vermont state legislature, you could come up with some other system that gives them the equal benefits. And that's what they do. They come up with this thing that's called civil unions. Um, you know, and this is in the Vermont context and it's repeated in a couple other states, marriage without the name. So the idea is you get all the rights and benefits, but you kind of implicate the religious, moral, traditional, uh, uh, valence of, of, of the, of, of the term marriage. Um, and this over the course of the next decade becomes the safe position for Democrat politicians. And so every, basically every national Democrat any ambitious Democrat through the 1990s, Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, uh, John Edwards, all become supporters of civil unions and stake out the third side in what had been a two-sided issue, which is, I believe, marriage between a man and a woman. Some of them talk more about the religious underpinnings of that belief, but I think that we shouldn't deny same-sex couples the rights and benefits. And this ends up being the place where politicians park themselves while as public opinion starts moving. And it's only, you know, Obama's a great example of this. And I sort of track his evolution in the book because I think it's a, you know, he, he shows himself, he shows his skill as a politician by always staying in wherever the safest place for the constituency that he cares most about is. And he becomes a civil union supporter. And it's only when Polling shows that 51% of Americans same-sex marriage in, in 2012 that, that he and Joe Biden um, and, and most other Democrats in any uh, uh, prominent office feel ready to, to make that turn. I want to focus on Biden for a minute and the Biden quote-unquote gaffe. I mean, the story of Biden in 2012 on Meet the Press 
going, again, quote-unquote, off script, because there's a discussion to be had about to the degree to which he went off script and the degree to which it was, it was planned. So can you walk us through this story of, of Biden, uh, perhaps? But let's, you know, let's frame it as going off message and work back from there. So what did he say? Was it off message or was there, was there a broader plan at work here? So he was asked in this interview, uh, basically, what do you think about gay marriage? And he gave an answer that if you read it in the transcript, you it it does not like scan. It is like he says, men marrying men and women marrying women. I don't any difference between uh, what I mean. It's just not like actually a sentence, um, for example. <laughs> um, but but it clearly is an expression of sympathy and solidarity with with same sex couples, and you know is not the way he talked about this four years earlier when he ran for president, and then became Obama's vice president when he was very specific in saying I think marriage is between a man and a woman for example. And so there was actually in the immediate, this was taped on Meet the Press airs on, on Sunday mornings in the U.S. This was taped on Friday afternoon in Washington. And there was an immediate disagreement among Biden's own communication staffers as to whether what he had said was an expression of policy preferences that was new and different, or whether he was just saying that he respected the right of, of you know, men to be with men, which is, was a sort of not terribly novel observation, you know, Democrats have always been sort of respectful towards gay relationships. They just said we shouldn't change how we codify them. And so um, it ends up registering that this is distinct from certainly the way that Obama had talked about it. And the backstory is that for the better part of the previous year, the White House had been trying to figure out how Obama could change his position. Obama had sort of committed by the summer of 2011 that he felt as though his existing position, which is I support civil unions and, and opposed same-sex marriage was no longer tenable. There are people around him, including David Axelrod, who basically thought that he had been disingenuous on this issue since he started running for president. There are a whole lot of considerations he faced as an African-American uh, who, had, who had worked very hard to sort of ingratiate himself into, into the world of church-going African-Americans in Chicago. Um, uh, and... That, that sort of dr- led him to that position. A lot of people around Obama thought it was not either deeply held or sincerely held. I'm not sure there's a meaningful difference there, but um, they thought he never really felt that comfortable with it. Re- by 2011, his party has moved. And now I don't think it is like a sense of internal hypocrisy that's fundamentally driving Obama. I think it is, uh, in part, it's politi- it's going to be politically unsustainable, certainly if he enters a second term to be the head of a party that is, moving out of sync with its its leader on this issue. And he sees other Democratic politicians who have made this shift. Andrew Cuomo in the, you know, ambitious, in, in, in his own ways, somebody who wants to run for president, you know, runs as a marriage equality supporter as for governor of New York, signed a bill into law that summer, is celebrated, has very little backlash, and I think that that's one of the big drivers is Obama is watching that saying, hey, like I can't I can no longer be where I am. But the challenge for the White House of how you, you know, the evolve metaphors becomes the one that they sort of latch on to the evolution metaphor. But the question of how you describe a change in position is a it's a tough nut when you're president of the United States. And I think it's tough rhetorically. You know, how do you describe this without looking opportunistic or flip flop? It's not like, you know. I changed my view that the top marginal tax rate should be 35%, so 31%, because now we have a deficit, or we see unemployment is down, so we can do this or that, right? It's like this, the way he talked about it was always so, so deeply rooted in, in 
in, in, in these like durable ideas about family and society and religion. And so they are sort of mapping out with how he's going to talk about it, where he's going to make this announcement, how they can do it in a way that, you know, they control the terms of it, but don't give it more attention than it needs. Cause they want his reelection campaign still to be about Mitt Romney's a rich guy who doesn't care about your job, not Barack Obama wants to legalize same-sex marriage. So they have to sort of map out when in the political year they're going to do this. So it doesn't overwhelm the convention and the debates. And they settle on the idea then Likely in early June, Obama will have to be in New York for some fundraisers. He will go on The View, which is a show with four women bantering uh, uh, that runs on ABC every day in the United States. That's a, a fairly casual environment where people talk about newsy topics. And it's decided that it's best for him to have this conversation with a, with a female interlocutor as opposed to a male interviewer, that he's going to, on The View, he's going to talk to the ladies of The View about how his views had changed. And this is the plan. Biden was basically up to date on the broad contours of this because they were having lunch every week. And then he gets asked this question and he states something which, you know, not a gaffe in that it's, it was, you know, I think a real expression of probably where his feelings were at the time, but certainly he was not intending to make news that way that day. And it became a huge issue in the White House and Obama was not happy with it. Valerie Jarrett, um, Obama's her personally close advisor, was was furious at Biden. She really thought it was a major betrayal of 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 um, of the president. And you know, within three days, all the plans that they had laid for exactly how and when Obama's going to break this news get tossed away, and they call in Robin Roberts from ABC News, and they have this sit down interview. Obama says that he's evolved and now he thinks same-sex couples uh, should be able to marry. And, um, and so the, the Biden thing, you know, the, the interesting thing in retrospect, having looked at the last seven years is Biden has turned this into a major part of his political identity. It, it arguably is the best claim he had when he went to the activist left in 2019 and to say like, I have credibility on issues of concern to the activist left, which had never really been his identity as a politician, but he has tried to grow into this idea of like LGBT rights champion. I, well, it's a perfect transition because I want to talk a little bit about how politicians claim this, this mantle in in Canada, same sex marriage is sometimes claimed by politicians as part of their record. Uh, But it was primarily a function of the courts here. And it wasn't that long ago that that before same-sex marriage that parliament had a vote and and affirmed through a motion that marriage was to be between a man and a woman. And that included a number of of members of parliament from the governing side, uh, or at least from the party of the governing side, who would later uh, vote for same-sex marriage and then claim it. So I'm curious uh, the degree to which the the U.S. story is similar and and whether or not you think same-sex marriage legislation would have happened without the courts? And if so, when? Because it strikes me that it's a fairly common story in North America across the two countries and, and their subnational jurisdictions that it's the courts that are driving this ahead of the people rather than the politicians leading. Yes, I, I think without courts, you know, the talked about Hawaii, we talked about Vermont, Massachusetts is the first state that has uh, where same-sex couples married in the spring of 2004. That comes out of a court order from the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. All these things notably are, are, as you say, subnational. These are uh, state courts interpreting state constitutions. And the federal judiciary during this time was um, still seen as fundamentally hostile to 
to gay rights. It was an, until 2000, it was only in 2003 that the U S Supreme court said that states did not have the right to ban consensual private consensual gay sex. Um, there's still a number of states that criminalize, you know, what they call them sodomy bans, um, uh, up until 2003. Uh, and so, you know, it was sort of two parts, one courts, but definitely not the federal judiciary. And so, um, in Hawaii, Vermont, and then Massachusetts, there was a sort of careful selection of places where the state constitution had unique provisions that could be leveraged for this benefit. And obviously that the sort of ideological composition of the court, uh, uh, and the predisposition of the judiciary to, to take sort of bold decisions would, would, would be there. But in every one of these cases, what happens is the court rules and then the political world tries to get involved. And in Hawaii, the legislature ends up, after that court decision in 1993 that I mentioned, the legislature, after a lot of intense lobbying from, from the Mormon church and to a lesser degree, the, the Catholic church, um, ends up uh, passing legislation that sends a constitutional amendment to the ballot. Voters in Hawaii vote overwhelmingly, over 60%, to um, uh, to ban same-sex marriage uh, uh, in their constitution, basically taking this away from the courts, effectively overruling the courts. In Vermont, as I mentioned, this gets you know sent to the legislature, and the legislature basically comes up with a compromise that is the bare minimum of what the court would accept, you know, it's a, it's a very bittersweet occasion for gay rights activists. They get this huge packet of benefits, but the legislature says, no, we still don't want to let you marry. And in Massachusetts, they have to fight for four years. Gay rights activists have to fight for four years after this favorable court decision to prevent legislature from uh, uh, beginning the process to amend the state constitution to, again, overrule it there. And California is an example in 2008. California is the second state in which a court uh, rules that same-sex couples can marry. This is in 2008. Couples start marrying in the spring, in the summer of 2008, and then six months later, Proposition Eight goes on the ballot, uh, which um, you know California was not the first state to amend its constitution to deny gay couples right to marry. It was the first one to do it after they had actually already started marrying and took away a right that the courts had guaranteed. And so the story in the U.S. is, I mean, I I, I believe this would have taken you know much longer if not like forever if it had had to be initiated through the political process, either through legislatures or ballot measures. Um, uh, but the biggest cha political challenge ended up being for gay rights activists in the first round of these fights, protecting victories that they had won in court from the political process. And, you know, I think that a lot of it was, you know, public opinion was able to move in part because the proof of concept had been delivered by courts. You know, the, the, we would not be at, at now, right now, 70% of Americans supporting same-sex marriage. I, I can't imagine if we hadn't seen that the fruits of marriage equality, which are that like gay people marrying isn't really that big a deal. If you had to sum it up as a, as a, as a, you know, observation about, about the policy landscape. And, um, and the only way that somebody would have crossed that threshold to making this imaginary thing real would have been through the courts. I cannot imagine the legislature in Massachusetts or any other state in the absence of this happening elsewhere saying, we want to be the first state to, to do this. And we want to, we as legislators want to go into our next election campaign, having to be the people who, 
you know, engineered this great social change. And, and this is one reason why most of the significant social changes in American life are at least initiated by the courts, if not, if not sustained through them. That's the that's certainly the Canadian story, and, and it, it has been especially true since the 1980s and the adoption of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I mean, it has truly enabled courts to, to pursue these things. And now there is sometimes a, a pushback from people who say, well, it's not very democratic. I dismiss that by saying that if legislatures don't like it, they have tools to respond, uh, and that courts are part of a democratic system. But I do note that it's fascinating that, that courts are often somewhat, in some cases, ahead of public opinion, but not too far ahead of public opinion. As one professor used to say to me, like, the court doesn't have an army. You know, its legitimacy comes from being within a certain bandwidth, even if it is progressive in ways that legislatures may not be because it's protected from the backlash of of the population, uh, which is to say the ballot box. But I'm curious about how public opinion moves after the rulings, because in Canada, it moved significantly after the rulings in favor of same-sex marriage. And that seemed to me to be the function of both a framing of same-sex marriage as equality rights, not special rights, and as the court being a heuristic that people trusted. And I wondered if that was a similar case in the U.S., that people said, okay, well, I, I can get behind it because these elites are behind it, these institutions are behind it, and equal rights sounds about right for me, you know, why shouldn't we all be equal? I think there may be reasons to suspect that after the uh, 2013 and 2015 U.S. Supreme Court decisions, I think there's a lot of sort of countervailing evidence at the state level. Um, you know, the, the Massachusetts, you know, there have been a couple of sort of moments where you see hints of backlash in public opinion nationally. And one of them is after the Massachusetts court decision. There's a lot happening around gay marriage in 2004 and sort of like disentangling what the events were that drove this is is – is, is impossible at this point, but you know, so a lot of the rhetoric became of gay rights opponents became about the process of activist judges, and this isn't just some extreme liberal, you know, whatever. But it's been imposed on us from above, and they made that part of uh, the process. Critique ended up being part of the kind of argument for how how revolution unacceptable unacceptably revolutionary this this thing was and the implication was it couldn't have passed through the political process so it could only be subjected on us to the courts we heard a lot of this about desegregation orders that came from the u.s supreme court in the 1950s too right it had to be forced on south carolina because south carolina would never have done this um uh and so you know what we see in in part of the messaging in in to a lesser degree and that that gets prop eight passed in california and takes away marriage is it is um, you know, there's, there's, uh, 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 so in, in, in Vermont, there's an issue to go to the ballot to ban same-sex marriage. They call it take it to the people. That message, um, that theme pops up in a number of these states where it becomes the reason we should amend our constitution is just as a, a, an assertion of popular sovereignty against a court that is overreached. Um, uh, you know, the other thing is it, the the Iowa Supreme Court rules in favor of same-sex marriage in in uh, the spring of 2009. It becomes the fourth state in the country, the first one not on the coasts to have any recognition of same-sex couples. And Vermont is a – we have a number of states where judges get elected and or have to stand for retention elections after they are nominated uh, by, and, by the governor and, and, and approved by the legislature. The chief justice of the Iowa Supreme Court who wrote the – majority opinion in the in this case Vardon v Bryan and loses her seat the next year uh, in a retention election 
um, because opponents decide that they want to mostly as a show of force, they're not going to undo the, the, the court ruling this way, but that they want to basically punish the judges who, 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 uh, who did it. Um, you know, when I interviewed her, she's like, I, I barely, she'd been up for retention elections before she said like, you know, it's the most routine thing in the world. Nobody ever does anything. You're not expected to campaign. And it's like all of a sudden she realized, Oh God, like I'm like a politician now. Um, because this issue unique among all the issues that the Iowa Supreme court had dealt with in the year she was there, provoked a, a sort of, you know, backlash effect that targeted her. So I think that, 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 um, that became part of the story of this was, uh, the idea that, that it couldn't be won at the ballot, which is why it becomes really important symbolically in 2012 that four say after 35 states have banned same-sex marriage in their constitutions at the ballot box, that four states in 2012, uh, Maine, Minnesota, Washington, and Maryland. So not all of them bordering Canada, but if you guys want to take credit for imparting some <laughs> some wisdom uh, over the over the, the the border, you can um, vote for same sex marriage, and that becomes, a, I think, a demonstration of politicians that okay, not only is polling showing that this is accepted, but that actually you can get victories. And by this point in 2012, now marriage has been delivered in states by courts by legislature, signed by governors, uh, and, and by, by voters. And, and I think that, you know, there's a sense that as you go to the Supreme court on the part of gay marriage litigators, that that, that the court's not going to want to get too far ahead of public opinion. This is a story that a lot of people on the left tell themselves about Roe v. Wade, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been very, was very vocal about this, that, that the court basically short-circuited a political process that was working out in favor of abortion rights state by state, got involved too early, and uh, helped to mobilize opposition to abortion rights because um, it got involved before a political consensus had been built in favor of them. And so one of the things that, you know, I, I write about in my book is that an organization called Freedom to Marry, which did this sort of hub for activism on this issue, uh, uh, you know, and had been helping to run these state level fights, had been trying to coordinate the, the litigation, had been doing a lot of the research into messaging, decides in, in 2013, especially 14, to focus not, to focus on moving public opinion um, in a way that's just going to be reflected in polls. And the whole idea is basically, they know, you know, they know Anthony Kennedy is going to be the fifth and decisive vote on the Supreme Court, and they build a political strategy that is just designed basically so that when Anthony Kennedy eats his cereal in the morning and opens up the Washington Post or whatever Supreme Court justices do uh, uh, for breakfast, um, he will see stuff that says that gay marriage is popular more Republicans support gay marriage, that, 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 would, that they'll go in with legal arguments and they're confident in their legal arguments, but the, the justices will not have a hesitation that they're getting too far ahead of, of, of public opinion. And that's a type of organizing, certainly something people have been cognizant of, the cultural, social environment that the courts rule. But, you know, this was an example of it being really built into strategy and spending a lot of money focused on, you know, in this case, moving opinion in, in, in a state like New York that are, that was liberal and had same-sex marriage, removing it in a state like Alabama that was conservative and wasn't going to have any state-level movement, but just because you want to show broad acceptance to, to, to people who are interpreting the Constitution. 
And the numbers move, right? I mean, this is one of the things, you know, in, in the aftermath in Canada, and presumably this was sort of on course ahead of time, but it certainly w- was even more pronounced after the rulings and then the legislation because it was both the, the court rulings and then later the, the federal legislation that acted as, as heuristics, as mental shortcuts or as guides for folks. It lo- it, if you looked at the numbers, it looked like people were on two different planets. I mean, to one group, it was, no, we're opposed. It's between men and, and a woman. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Between other groups, it was, why am I even being asked about this? Because it just, it, it just doesn't register as an issue. It's obviously fine. Uh, there's also a, a general a generational replacement uh, variable. And I wonder how the, the opinion has moved in, in, in the years since 2015. And, and to what degree do you think it's about heuristics? To what degree do you think it's about people just get, sort of getting used to it? Uh, and to what degree is it about uh, uh, generations? People, quite frankly, people dying and new people yeah. being born. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, one thing that was true in the polling around um, uh, uh, same-sex marriage and a whole bunch of gay rights issues was uh, that younger people were always more liberal than 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 their older equivalents. And this was true across subgroups in polling. So younger Latinos were more liberal than older Latinos. Young evangelicals were more liberal than older evangelicals. Young women more than, than older women. Um, and, and uh, you know, I... I think I quoted Evan Wolfson, who was the head of Freedom Green at some point, saying, you know, joking a little darkly, um, you know, I think our greatest political asset is that our, the opposition is dying off. And, you know, we're now at a point where 85% of people between the ages of 18 and 30 support same-sex marriage, um, you know, and, and the numbers were lower a decade ago. But basically, you had a, a, a dynamic, you know, where every time somebody turned 18, the odds were like, you know, three and four that a new same-sex supporter, broadly LGBT rights supporter, entered the electorate. And every time somebody died, the, you know, odds were like two and three that somebody who opposed it moved on. And like, that's that's pretty powerful. Um, uh, and, the, and the numbers were significant enough that, that you actually could see that year to year. You know, this wasn't some glacial, like, generational turnover takes a long time. They were just the... the, the the generational divides are so stark. And we, and to be clear, like in the U S context, we don't see that on abortion mm. or on gun control. It's not like this is every cultural social issue has this generational dynamic. This is really unusual. Um, you know, and then the other part of it, which I think probably has a generational component to it is we just know from, you know, social science calls it contact theory. Um, uh, normal people will just call it like, you know, somebody who's gay and you <laughs> probably are less anti-gay. Um, but, you know, we've seen, from Pola through the from the nineteen eighties, that the uh, uh, that that the best predictor of of support for gay rights again, not just marriage, is often how somebody answers the polling question. Do you know somebody? Do you have a friend, coworker, or family member who's openly gay or lesbian, whatever? However, it's best. And you know that number is around twenty percent in the early eighties when it first got asked. Now it's you know close to a hundred. And, you know, one of the things that, that is distinctive about this issue is that, um, unlike race or gender, for example, or nationality or, um, uh, sometimes religion, um, people can control the conditions under which they acknowledge and disclose and announce who they are. And, 
you know, and so the, the engine of coming out as not just a process of like self-actualization and, and, you know, honesty, but as a political tactic, you know, it creates a, a force where, um, people are knowing gay people and that's an incredibly persuasive tool. If you could build that into your campaigns, you would try to find a way to campaigns sort of tried to mimic this in their actual like door knocking. Like how do we basically create this circumstances where people who didn't realize that they know gay people now all of a sudden know gay people and then are going to think differently about their desire to marry. And so that, that ends up playing into generational turnover because younger people are far more likely to identify as anything under the LGBTQ uh, umbrella, but, um, and presumably some part of the, the, uh, the attitudinal difference is downstream from sort of familiarity. Yeah, I mean, it even worked with Dick Cheney. Yeah. I, it, you know, it's, it's remarkable. It's notable too, right? I mean, it, it, this is a story that keeps coming up again and again and again, but it comes up because it is extraordinary. I mean, Dick Cheney is a conservative Republican whose daughter happens to be a lesbian, right? And, and it certainly seemed to have affected his thinking. And, and I think one, you know, this is, I, one presumes that the percentage of the population that's gay or lesbian is the same now that it was in 1980, right? Um, obviously far more people are, are out and thus far more people know somebody who's gay. One, you know, one thing um, that's important is we, you know, the natural thing in the U.S. context is to think about that, is to think about any civil rights movement or social justice movement in comparison to the the efforts to win women property rights and the vote and the effort to to have full racial equality under the law. And um, it's important to recognize that one uh, you know difference between this is that uh, certainly issues around race or ethnicity is that gay people are born to straight people almost by definition. Um, and uh, that they are born into, thus born into gay, into straight households, into neighborhoods where presumably the majority of people are straight. Um, the odds of having a, one presumes of having a gay or lesbian child or a gay and lesbian neighbor are probably evenly distributed geographically. And so, you know, Dick Cheney, you know, uh, a, 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 for example, opposed an embargo on apartheid in the 1980s. Dick Cheney was probably not going to end up with a African child or an African-American child that changed his views on, on racial equality. Dick Cheney got a white lesbian daughter, like that's biology. Um, and we see that throughout this, he was very early as a, as a, you know, prominent Republican, but, you know, Rob Portman in, in 2013, uh, Senator from Ohio had been in Bush's cabinet, prominent figure that people have talked about running for vice president or president, becomes the first national Republican to say, I support same-sex marriage. But Dick Cheney was, I think it should be left to the states. I don't really think we should amend the Constitution. Um, uh, uh, just basically, basically wasn't anti, but he certainly never, as my understanding, like actually said, I think as a matter of policy, this would be better than than not. Um, and Rob Portman's son had come out as gay and, you know, it, it, we see versions of this. I read about Paul Singer, who was a major hedge fund investor in, in Manhattan, who, uh, one of the largest conservative donors in American politics, a kind of down the line, like Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan type of, of, of big money donor conservatives can be on just about every issue, but he found out that his son was gay and all of a sudden this became an issue that he cared about and he started rallying other Wall Street investors to, to, to back them up. And um, that this is something that is very hard to, you know, 
immigrants aren't being born to the as children to, to native born parents, right? You can go through the analogies here, but I think it ends up being immensely powerful uh, um, when you when you understand that nature is also a sort of engine of of, of familiarity. Uh, we're coming in uh, on the last few minutes here. I want to close out on, on looking at the current state of affairs and what the future might hold, uh, because the title of the episode is, you know, what is the future of, of same-sex marriage in the United States? And that was sort of a way to get at the question of, you know, is this settled? And I'm thinking both of, of same-sex marriage itself, but other gay rights struggles, which are ongoing in the United States or in the news right now, uh, as, you know, as folks turns to the Supreme Court and rulings on religious freedom. And I'm wondering, I mean, is this settled? And if this is settled, uh, what does that mean for, for other rights struggles about access to benefits and so forth? I think the core holding of Obergefell, which was that the, the uh, right to fundamental marriage extends to same-sex couples is not going to be challenged. You know, we have not seen, I think there's no reason to believe that what we saw with Roe v. Wade, for example, that you'd have a generation uh campaign to overturn this court decision we do not see the makings of that and frankly it's really hard to actually imagine how somebody would try to mount to challenge to to the core of obergefell what we have seen almost immediately after the supreme court ruling uh in 2015 has been uh sorry i think two separate things one there's been a push towards these religious liberty, religious freedom uh, exemptions, some codified through legislatures, but also going to the courts. Supreme Court this month is hearing a case from uh, a Catholic social servants agency that um, basically doesn't want to place foster children with, with gay parents. Um, a few years ago, there was a case that went to the Supreme Court that was sort of where the court sort of dodged the core question, but um, was a baker in Colorado who uh, said that his religious beliefs uh, precluded him from making a cake for a gay wedding. We've seen lots of versions with wedding photographers and caterers, stuff like that. Um, you know, the it's important to reckon this, these are issues that are being fought out about gay marriage, and they could have a serious impact on what a gay couple being married means in their lives and places. But we, it should also be understood that this is fundamentally a concession of the broader fight. That, you know, for, for a generation, religious conservatives, there's a reason Jerry Falwell's group is called Moral Majority, that religious conservatives argued, going back to the late 70s, that Judeo-Christians were a majority in the United States, or they were Christians were a majority in the United States, and the country should reflect a Judeo-Christian philosophy and values on a whole lot of issues, including marriage, and they tried to change the laws up to and including the Constitution of the United States to reflect biblical values. Now, they've acknowledged that they have lost that part of the culture wars. You turn on Fox News, and they no longer say, we're the majority, that we should write the laws in our image. They say, we're a besieged minority, and Hollywood, and the Democrats, and academia, and big business, and whatever is out to put, keep us down. Um, and going to court with demanding these re religious liberty uh, uh, exemptions, protections, rather, are that's a loser's game. I mean, that is fundamentally adopting the same posture that civil rights groups had, which is saying we cannot win through the political process. We cannot have the laws defend our values because we are, you know, politically powerless and we are a besieged minority. Um, and all we want to do is basically to be sheltered from the laws that we think are that we don't like. And, you know, I think that the the natural end point of this is not that 
states can ever go back to banning gay couples from marrying or denying them the right to marry. But we could end up in a world where a few years from now, I think we see an employer say our owners, our board, our shareholders have a certain set of religious values that um, lead us to not want to give health insurance coverage to same-sex partners of our employees that we give to opposite-sex partners. Um, this is one area where where the fact that we have a largely privatized social safety net means that there are a lot more things which can sort of be, you know, where you get public public respect for your marriages does not necessarily, you know, in, in theory could mean people could try to carve out private benefits separately. You know, a gym saying we'll give a membership discount to, to, uh, 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 spouses of, of our members, you know, or you can get a family deal if you're straight, but you can't get it if you're gay, stuff like that. That stuff will be litigated. There will be efforts in, in, in legislatures and conservative states to codify it. I think that's sort of where the kind of frontier of marriage is, but, but I think we should really acknowledge it's a different, it's a different ask of, of the broader society. Um, uh, and then, you know, what, what we saw almost immediately after this went to the Supreme Court and, and the anti- anti-gay activists realized that they had lost the broader marriage fight as they just pivoted to trans issues where they continue mm-hmm. to have, you know, and still, you know, an advantage in public opinion. I still think a sort of fear of the new status quo bias among, among the public. And, you know, one of the things that I think we're going to be living with these questions about, about gender identity and how, you know, especially how you, how you deal with, single sex institutions, uh, for a while. And some of them have, have thornier implementation questions in marriage and marriage is, this is the amazing thing about this landmark decision comes to the Supreme court in 2015 and all the state decisions. It's huge. It's monumental in civil rights terms. It's a monumental constitutional thing. The lives of, of ultimately millions of people are affected by it, but the implementation is a clerk has to change a few words on a form. That's it. When the court ordered that schools had to be desegregated, that's really tough. Neighborhoods are built around schools. 70 years later, we still do not know how to actually desegregate schools. Uh, and it might not be that thorny with, with the, uh, with the trans questions, but we do have a lot of single gender institutions and ultimately you're going to have to reckon with the fact that we no longer think about sex and gender the way that we did 30 years ago or 50 years ago. And one thing I think that's going to hover over the the debate over transgender issues is that the science is changing and, and the popular understanding of the scientific underpinning of gender identity are in flux in a way that they were about homosexuality even 20, 30 years ago. And one of the things that the, the, the sort of political and legal change on marriage was built on a foundation of a shifting understanding of, of homosexuality from a lifestyle or a choice or a set of behaviors to, you know, uh, to something that people are born with, no matter how, we sort of understand the gene environmental interactions or whatever, but we basically, everybody basically accepts now that people don't control whether or not they're gay or lesbian. And it's not just about sexuality. It's the way we talk about addiction and temper and all sorts of other human qualities. And I suspect that what, what lay people come to think about where gender identity comes from in 2031, is going to be very different than whatever the sort of broad mainstream understanding of it is now. And I think that, you know, then the question: What do, what do, what does society owe people who are born a certain way? Um, look very different, uh, um, and I think that the marriage debate certainly shifted on the basis of that. 
Well, thank you for that. that. That brings us to time. Our first live episode, one of our longer episodes. I'm very, very glad that it was. And so first of all, my thank you to you, Sasha Eisenberg, for joining me here today. The book is The Engagement, America's Quarter Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. So once again, thank you, Sasha. Thank you, David. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. And to uh, the audience who joined us here live and the audience who will be listening from wherever you may be, my thanks to you as well. And of course, as always, my thanks to Mira Ahmad, Carolyn Smith, Aaron Reynolds, who make the show not only possible, but far better uh, than it would be without them. I thank them as well. So thanks again to everyone for this. Check out the book. I highly recommend it. Readable, engrossing, important, uh, and not just a, a story of the past, but a story of the future. I highly, 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 highly recommend it. So my thanks to everyone, and we will see you again here in two weeks. Hey, I'm Jody Butts, host of At Risk, a podcast show on the 2020 Network that seeks to help us better protect the things we care most about during these dynamic and challenging times. At Risk is about better understanding the role of risk in our everyday lives and how best to manage it. I speak with interesting Canadians like astronaut Colonel Chris Hadfield, Olympian Haley Wickenheiser, entrepreneur Tarek Haddad, and Canada's 18th Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Brian Mulroney. Do you really care about something if you're not thinking about how you could lose it? You can find At Risk on your favourite podcast app or on the 2020 Network. Thanks for listening.